Well, I did not remember that it was Reformation Sunday, but I tell you what we can do is have a sermon in the vernacular from Scripture um, and uh, from the book of Galatians in honor of the Reformation, I think. Uh, so let, in, with that in mind, let's turn to Galatians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 11 through 14. Let's pray. Our God, your, your word is far sweeter to us than honey. We ask that we could find its comfort and also its sting to be uh, sweeter to our souls than honey. And that by your word and by the sacrament to follow and through the working of your spirit, you uh, would feed and nourish your flock this morning that we could go forth with uh, strengthened faith in the cross of Christ and a renewed energy to do those things which you have called us to do. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I'll read aloud if you would read silently. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, Paul continues here in this section his um, primary point that he's been explaining throughout the book so far, and that is that he is an apostle of Christ. His apostleship and his authority as an apostle comes from Christ because it's Christ who commissioned him and who gave him the gospel. And in this passage, he continues to advance that argument. Um, and ultimately, his point in this passage is that the gospel is the corrective authority. So we see when he corrects Peter, it's not really because of his own um, desires or standard. It's because Peter is out of step with the gospel. So the gospel is the corrective authority. So I want us to see as we examine this passage um, is that the corrective authority of the gospel has corrective authority over our lives as well. We're meant to not only know the, the truths or the facts of the gospel, but we're called to walk in step with those truths. So as believers, we bear the name of Christ. We not only bear it, but we are expected to walk in accord with that identity. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So we must walk in a manner worthy 
of God, he says. And we also must recognize that many times we do not walk in a manner worthy of God. That's the whole point of reading the law and confession, right? God has given us many sources of correction to help us walk in a manner worthy of Him and in a variety of avenues in our lives. So the government serves that purpose in some sense. Um, Our parents, the church, uh, our brothers and sisters, fellow brothers and sisters, uh, our own conscience and our uh, own Bible reading in the Holy Spirit. And in this story, we get kind of a glimpse into a window of uh, an apostolic correction and really, some hot sparks fly at this iron sharpening iron. This is a serious passage. What we find in this passage is that the ultimate standard by which these difficult matters that they're dealing with is settled is the word of Christ, the gospel. So I want to urge us this morning that it, that we be people who seek to find ourselves more and more submitted to the authority of the gospel, the corrective authority of the gospel. So that's the primary exhortation proceeding from this text, is live in submission to the corrective authority of the gospel. Live in submission to the corrective authority of the gospel. The first thing that jumps out at us immediately in this text is the correction part. Paul begins in verse 11, When Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. Strong words of correction. Um, Antioch was a city, a pretty good distance from Jerusalem to the north. It was the capital city of Syria, and it seemed to be kind of Paul's home base during his missionary journeys, and it was not too far from his hometown of Tarsus. Uh, And this city of Antioch was heavily heavily Gentile, probably only 10% Jewish. One estimate I saw was 250,000 people, 25,000 Jewish. So it was heavily Gentile. At some point, we don't really know when. Most attempts I saw were speculative to pin down when Peter visited Antioch. But he did visit Antioch. And while he was there, the story that we just read unfolded. And these sparks of correction began to fly. Um, so th- there, there is some capsaicin in Paul's tone here. He, there's some heat. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Condemned here uh, doesn't necessarily mean damned as much as it means that there could rightly be a charge of guilt laid at the feet of Peter. So Paul's purpose here is not to drag Peter's name through the mud or to brag about that one time that he corrected the Apostle Peter. The context, as we've seen, is that he's defending his own apostleship, which is absolutely vital for the the ministry to the Galatians, because if they accept his gospel, they have Christ, and if they don't, they lose Christ. So what he drives home in this story is that no one man, including himself, has authority in and of himself, but that true corrective authority is lodged instead in the word of Christ, in the gospel. We can take home a few lessons from uh, verse 11. First is that Paul engages here in public and direct rebuke of Peter. So he... He doesn't resort to behind-the-back whispering and gossip about Peter. This is direct. 
and he, nor does he bottle up his frustration and let it, let it fester. He deals with the issue. And this was not a correction proceeding from jealousy, like I'm the new guy on the block, I'm, I'm the satellite bull trying to knock out uh, the big dog in town. This is not jealousy. This is really Paul being genuinely concerned for the spiritual well-being of his fellow apostle and also for the believers and the impact that this will have on the church. So really, he's seeking genuine repentance from Peter. And I think we're pretty good at identifying injustices in our lives. We can identify them quite quickly. We can identify inconsistency in everyone around us quite quickly. Or sloppy doctrine. Um, And really, we're also quite quick to talk about those things behind people's backs while never at the same time seeking their spiritual welfare or or repentance. And anger and frustration festers and the problem gets worse. Where here, he gives us a good example that he engages the problem face-to-face for the good of the brother himself and for the church. Another thing that we can glean from uh, verse 11 is that he does open his mouth. When he encounters something serious, he opens his mouth. Another problem we see with, within ourselves, I think, and within myself, is that we see error and we'd rather sit in silence. Just sweep the bugs under the rug, don't rock the boat, keep the peace. It's easier. Just let it go and it will work itself out. That, that's a much easier undertaking than, my dear brother, I, I believe you're in error here. How can, we, how can we work this out? Or, like in this case, which, by the way, should be very rare, a call to publicly, a public call to publicly expose a public offense against the gospel. Paul says that Peter stood condemned. In verse 11, why does he stand condemned? And this is the story, again, from verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So I think it's safe to assume that Peter was in Antioch, after his encounter with Cornelius in the vision of the sheet in in chapter 10 of Acts. And actually, I'm going to read a little bit of that if you want to turn over to chapter 10 of Acts. Acts chapter 10, uh, 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. 
This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Of course, all of this leaves Peter scratching his head until the men sent from Cornelius knock on the door. And Cornelius had sent them because an angel came to him in a vision and said, Get get Peter. So Peter went with these men to Cornelius' house. He preached the gospel to them and they believed. And he baptized them and he stayed with them for a couple of days. And when Peter returned to Jerusalem, the, the circumcision party questioned him. They said, here he preached the gospel to these people and they say you ate with uncircumcised men when he explained what happened Luke says that the people fell silent and they glorified God saying then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life so all of this happened presumably before Peter went to Antioch and what Paul probably means in verse 12 is that Peter was eating with Gentiles as a Gentile. That is to say, he was not observing the Mosaic food laws when he was eating with them. He, he was eating with unclean people. And for a Jew, that was very sketchy. They could touch his cup, and his cup would be unclean. And if they were serving breakfast burritos, there's a good chance there was bacon in them. But he could eat this in good conscience, knowing that he had been freed in Christ from these food laws, from these observances. And yet, here in the story, we find that he found himself captive to the corruption of his flesh in a very familiar way for Peter. On that one very dark occasion, he had placed the fear of men above the fear of God and denied Jesus three times. And now, once again, he allows his fear of man to cause him to act in a way that runs counter to his personal convictions and confessions of truth. And Paul calls this hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. He was fine to eat with the Gentiles until these men from James came up, but when they arrived, everything changed. And it's unclear just who these men from James were or what their mission was. It's, it's possible that uh, they were, some of them were kind of Judaizing or circumcision party types. I think more likely to me, and this is just a reasonable guess, but Peter may have feared the consequences that when they went back and gave their report in Jerusalem, the circumcision party would react negatively, which would have been very uncomfortable for him. But Paul makes uh, Peter's motivation very plain here. He says that he did what he did fearing the circumcision party. Not fearing the Lord, fearing the circumcision party. His actions also didn't affect just himself, but it says that this was a man people looked up to. This is Peter, the apostle. And so that even Barnabas, who was one of the primary players in the mission to the Gentiles, was led astray to, to, to sit aloof from the, the Gentiles. So Paul isn't in, in a huff over um, trivial details like, like what kind of food a person eats or who sat by whom at the, the church potluck. The issue here is the integrity of the gospel. Peter and the other people, by their actions, the other Jews, communicated one thing with their words and their confessions and something completely different with their actions. 
by separating themselves, they were in effect saying a stake in the fellowship of the family of God is purchased through adherence to Old Testament food laws. That's what their actions spoke. And that's exactly what the Judaizers are doing in Galatian here with, with circumcision. And in fact, it's interesting, Paul in the next verse basically calls Peter a Judaizer. But in, the, in effect, by their actions, they were communicating really a works plus grace gospel. They were also violating another fundamental tenet of the gospel, which is that the gospel transcends all ethnic barriers. I mean, isn't that a major point in Romans and in Ephesians that that God has torn down the dividing wall? So it was just for Paul to say that Peter stood condemned. He had opened himself up to, to very serious charges like hypocrisy, like heteropraxy. He really was guilty of these crimes against the gospel. And these things were doing great damage to Christ's flock. I think generally mature Christians reject the proverb, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. I mean, evangelism is the process of bringing a message of good news to people, and messages contain words. But that does not mean that our actions do not also speak volumes. I'm sure you know that the word hypocrite comes from this idea of play actors wearing a mask, concealing their true identity with with a mask. Because of his fear of men, Peter put on a mask here to, to conceal his true identity, to conceal his true convictions. It's not that he switched positions all of a sudden on food laws. He, he just wanted to hide what he believed for the sake of his own comfort. Thomas Schreiner comments here helpfully. He says, Paul does not say that Peter changed his behavior relative to eating with the Gentiles on the basis of new convictions. Rather, he charges that Peter and those who joined him acted out of fear. According to the text, Peter and Paul still agreed theologically. Paul rebukes Peter because the latter acted against his convictions. I think we have to ask ourselves, how often do we have our masks at the ready? You know, at work, in other public arenas, with family. Um, Because the things that we believe really can cause us great inconvenience and great discomfort. And it's easier at times to just put on the mask. And it's a daily and even hourly task to labor at peeling that mask away from our faces. I think sometimes the the false identity of ignorant agnostic is easier to wear than the mask or the, the true face of servant of Christ. So we have to ask ourselves, why do we act one way around certain people and another way around other people? And there can be legitimate reasons for doing that. But there are times when our actions deny the gospel truths that we confess with our mouths. Paul calls this action of of walking one way and talking another, he calls it not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. In verse 14, 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? A session meeting this week, Michael gave a really helpful to me um, devotional from Kings, First Kings thir- three, uh, where Solomon asks God for wisdom, and he pointed out at that moment in time, Israel was not worshiping God rightly. They were worshiping in they were worshiping Him, but in the high places. But at the same time, we see God was pleased with Solomon's request and granted that request despite the sin of the nation. And it really shows the wonderful grace of God when we turn to Him as sinners. And by that that helpful devotional, I was reminded of my own temptation to try to clean myself up before approaching God. Ah. I want to have all my theology nailed down and systematized, and then I can go to God. I I want to have my sin cleaned up. And once I'm all spiffed up, then I can come to the throne. Which is foolish. It's like a homeless man who hasn't showered or had a haircut in ten years, puts on his dumpster dive tuxedo, trying to look spiffy. But he's not fooling anyone. Nor am I. I'm filthy, and God knows it. But he doesn't expect me to be spiffy. This attitude that I have within my soul is out of step with the gospel. The gospel says that in Christ I approach God on Christ's merits, not mine. It says that Jesus died to reconcile me to right relationship with the Father. That by Christ I have direct access to him and it pleases him when I approach him to fulfill the things that I lack. So I think in the same way, although more public and I would tend to think more serious, Peter and the others conducted, their their conduct was out of step with the gospel. Paul publicly points out here their hypocrisy. He says, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I, I didn't at first get what he was saying there, but I think here's basically what he's saying, that all this time you've been in Antioch, you, although Jewish ethnically, have been living like a Gentile, eating like a Gentile. And now your conduct says you must live like Jews. You must observe the food laws. So how can you, who live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And Paul says to this attitude, you've been living like a Gentile and now you tell them they have to live like Jews? That's hypocrisy. This phrase, live like Jews, is the the Greek word eudiazo. You can hear the word judaizer, eudiazo. And this word forced, forced them to live like Jews is the same word from verse 3 but even Titus was not forced to be circumcised or compelled and I think Paul is quite intentional here echoing verse 3 it's as if to say Peter had affirmed Paul's gospel back in Jerusalem not compelling Titus to be circumcised and now by his action he is compelling Gentiles to be Judaized to keep the food laws this is inconsistent and hypocritical 
And Peter's sin was really a grievous sin. Um, to deny the gospel truth by his actions, particularly as a teacher and as an apostle, w- was very severe error. People looked up to him and he led them astray. And we can imagine really what damage this could have caused and probably did cause on a budding Gentile congregation in Antioch. How confusing and divisive we can imagine the Gentiles kind of, do we or do we not have to follow the food laws? Well, Peter ate with us before, now look at him. It's divisive, it's terrible, it's disruptive. Sin is tragic and it has effects on real people. And we may be tempted at this point to say, well, if Peter the Apostle screwed up that bad, what am I going to do? We might be tempted to hole up and not speak the truth. But we have to remember that to do nothing, to say nothing, to refrain from making the gospel of Jesus Christ known is also conduct out of step with the gospel. We have to remember that God loves to get glory by us and by using messed up people. Think of Moses, David, and Paul, all murderous at heart. The gang of liars and adulterers and miscreants that God uses in the Bible for His glory should give us and gives me a great deal of confidence. So we must labor in Christ by the Spirit, knowing that God will get glory, not so much uh, from our contributions, but in spite of them. I mean, we've all probably had young kids who want to help. The other day... Uh, Kelly was putting clothes in boxes and folding them up and Abel was helping. He was going around to the boxes, pulling the clothes out of the boxes. God gets glory in spite of our help. Peter's sins were, I think, in some ways more grave than even murder or adultery. Which is a strong statement, but here's why. As Matthew 10 32 and 33, Jesus says, So for everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I think we should be careful with a passage like this not to make a distinction between wrestling with the sins of people-pleasing, love of the world, and hypocrisy, and an outright denial of Christ. I think we can make a distinction between those two things. And we see that difference in the difference between Peter, for example, and Demas. Demas was a man who, who traveled with Paul on his missionary journey, seemed to be a part of the apostolic band. And then Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I think it's safe to assume that Peter accepted well the correction of Paul. Um, All of this presumably took place before the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15, and Peter went on to play a role in that first church council, which condemned Judaizing outright. So it seems that Peter um, repented, which is in big contrast uh, between Peter and Demas. And the big contrast is not the quantity or the severity of sinfulness, but spirit-guided repentance. 
And that to me is where all of this kind of ties together into the main exhortation this morning is that the call of the sermon, again, is to live in submission to the corrective authority of the gospel. Live in submission to the corrective authority of the gospel. So if we find ourselves being pulled away from our convictions and confessions of Christ to act in a way contrary to them, or when we find ourselves enticed by the allure of the world, or weakened by our fear of men, or if we have our masks always at the ready to just ease that discomfort of following Christ, we should not arrogantly make excuses like Saul did, but we should come under the corrective authority of the gospel and pray that the Spirit would guide us into deeper and heartfelt repentance of those things. Paul makes, uh, that's his central point here, is that he makes so plain that his authority to correct Peter is not a self-defined standard of right and wrong or some governmental authority or traditional authority, but the standard of authority which reigns over both Peter and Paul is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul really leaves us with a fine example in Colossians 1 of the impact uh, that living in submission to the authority of the gospel looks like. Um, And I'll close here. Paul prays for the Colossian church. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Listen to this prayer that Paul desires for these people. And so from the day we heard that they had accepted the gospel, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So may we daily grow in strength to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And may he by his spirit cause us to bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of God. Amen.